we cannot leave the book of Judges without taking care of these last five chapters because as I said, it is part of the theme of the book and it is not a very pretty story. It's a story of a kingdom that was not. A story of a people lost without a king, without the shalom that the king had promised because the people left their God and forgot so much about him. Let's take a brief look at that life of Israel in the days of the judges. Israel without the king and without shalom. In chapter 17, where we begin, we find this man, Micah, unknown, a stranger to us, but a member of the tribe of Ephraim, and he had stolen silver from his mother. Wasn't a very nice thing to do, but they settled that matter, and as a result of that, uh, Micah took that silver that he had stolen with the blessing of his mother to make a shrine for his family. So he made an ephod, he made some idols, and uh, he even installed first his son as a priest, and then not too long after that, the Levite came along and he said, hey, that's better yet. We'll get the Levite to be our priest. And so he established his own private shrine and worship, completely contrary to everything that God had ever said about worshiping him. In chapter 18, we read another part of the bad story, and that's the tribe of Dan. We remember that we, told, uh, we were told from the scriptures last week that Dan didn't really have a place to live of his own because he was not faithful in conquering that land, and the Philistines are taking it over anyway. And so they were living, most of them were living in kind of a, a refugee camp. Well, they decided that they'd better look for something else. So they formed a group of scouts, of probably five or six men, to tell them, he, they told them to go search the countryside and find a better place to live, something that was easy to take and something that was still available. So they went, and on the way going north through Ephraim, they came upon man's Micah's house, where there was a shrine and an ephod and a priest. And they, they discovered all of that. So they actually asked the priest, in quotation marks, because he was a Levite, not a priest, they asked him to consult God to see if they would be okay for them to continue on their journey. And he said, yes, go. God gives you his blessing. And so they went all the way north, the far north. They went past, or oh, even Issachar. They went past Zebulun. They went past Naphtali, way into the territory of the Phoenicians. And there they found a little town called Laish. It was unprotected. It was quite a ways from the capital of the Phoenician Empire. And so they thought, this is probably a good place. It doesn't look like they will give us much opposition. So they went back. And they decided as a tribe that that's what they would do. Well, okay. So the tribe decided that they would take 600 armed men, pretty good sized force, and they go and take this, stick, this city and we'll go all over there. So they did. They went over on the way. And on the way again, they stopped at Micah's house. Well, this time they didn't bother about Micah at all. They just stole his priest. They stole his idols. They stole his shrine. And they wrapped it all up and were going to take it with them. Micah ran after them and said, hey, you can't do that. That's mine. And they said, what do you mean it's yours? You 
got 600 men here. You got one. Who's going to decide who's his who, what? So they stole everything, went north, and captured the city of Laish, destroyed the town, killed all its people, and said, this is now the city of Dan. It belongs to us. Chapter 19 tells us another story. Uh, a Levite living in Ephraim, but then having lost his concubine to unfaithfulness, who had moved back to her dad's house in Bethlehem, of all places, he went after her to get her back. He was there a few days and finally decided that it was all right to go travel. And so they went north, past the city of Jebus, who was still in the hands of the, uh, the pagan people of Jebus, the Jebusites, and came to the city of Gibeah in Bethlehem, in Benjamin. And there they finally were welcomed into the home of an old man. Nobody else seemed to bother about it, these visitors in town. And it was night, getting to be night already. So they were offered lodging in this old man's house. And during the later evening, the wicked people of Gibeah came to the door, knocked on the door, wanted this Levite to come out. And they wanted homosexual relations with him. Well, the host refused that, and they put out the concubine just to appease these evil people. And what happened to her, we will not even talk about. They found her the next morning dead at the doorsteps of the home. The Levite was so dis distraught, he cut her body into 12 pieces and sent a piece of that body to each and every tribe in Israel, claiming this cannot be done. This is not good. This is not our Israel. And as a result of that, the 11 tribes came together and formed a, a force and went to Benjamin and said, Re give us these e evil men who did all this. But Benjamin refused. Man, after all, that was Benjamin. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need to listen to anybody else. Everybody does what is right in his own eyes because there's no king. And so they had standstill. Now what? Well, they had to go to war. So there's a civil war developed, and this is told in, this, in chapter 20. It's a terrible war. It's a bloody war. Many, many soldiers of all the tribes suffered and died in that war. And finally, after three battles, the first and the second battle, the people of Israel won. The third battle, the, excuse me, the, the people of Benjamin won. But the third battle, the people of Israel won. They destroyed Gibeah, and they destroyed much of Benjamin. So at the end of the story of the, that chapter 20, there's just no Benjamin left. Not really. There's some soldiers left who fled to the desert, somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 to 800 men. But all of the rest of the population of Benjamin is gone, destroyed, no more. Now Israel has a terrible problem. We're supposed to be 12 tribes, but we only got 11 left. The tribe of Benjamin cannot exist with just 600 or 800 men. It's not possible. They knew that. So they decided on a plan. They were going to get wives for these leftover Benjamites, 
And so they asked themselves, well, who did not help us in the war against Benjamin? And they found that one town by the name of Jabesh Gilead from the tribe of Gad had not helped them. So they said, well, we'll go over there. We'll raid the city and we'll steal as many of the virgins as we can find. And so they went there and did that. They punished Jabez Gilead, made a lot of mess there, and took 400 of the women, young women, from that tribe or from that city and brought them to the men of Benjamin. But that was not enough. They needed a few more. And so they gave the tribe permission to take the men who had no wives to go to Shiloh at the time of the festival and if they would hide themselves among the, gra the grapevines and the, the olive trees, they could watch and see who was coming. And if there were some um, ladies who were obviously still young ladies who were not married, they could just kidnap them. And that's what they did. And so they got enough wives for all the men of Benjamin that were left. And thus Benjamin was restored. But can you imagine what a story that is? No wonder it says at the end of the book, everybody did what was right in his own sight. There is no king here. There's no shalom here. There's no peace. There's no justice. There's no wholeness. And that's what God wanted. He wanted them to know who he is and who he had been for them all along so that they would never forget how the wholeness of the whole nation, the, the welfare of the nation came from him, not from themselves. But they forgot that. And so here we have a situation where there's a man with his private shrine and it gets stolen by a tribe. They take it, make it their private shrine. There's great immoral behavior in Benjamin. There's a war that is just very destructive, a civil war which is very unusual for the people of Israel. There will be a few more skirmishes like that later on in their history. But this was very, very strange indeed for the people of God the way they lived in the book of Judges. No king, and therefore there is no justice. Now you know that what, what the book complains about, of course, is that there is no king like God. There's no king who is God. He is not there in their hearts and in their lives, and that's why there is such a mess. The chaos and the destruction comes from their disobedience and their forgetting their Lord that he is their king and that he had given them the way to go. He gave them all the information that they needed so that they would live in a new way with peace and harmony between all of them, that they would help each other, that they would bring unity and wholeness to the to, in, whole nation. And they forgot all that. They just wandered off and did their own thing. Sounds like people we know, like us. <laughs> you know, this is not a strange story in human history. This is the story of mankind in many ways. And that brings us to what we really want to talk about today, because after all, today is Palm Sunday. And we acknowledge the coming of the king on this day, the, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who is the king of Israel, who is the king of the nations, who is the king of our hearts. And he came to be that king, and that's why we have Palm Sunday. It's a beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. And it's 
something that is very dear to the scriptures. The, this coming of Jesus is, is so much in the scriptures. Steve already mentioned that this morning, but the, the whole breadth of the Old Testament is the, the longing of the people of God for the coming of their king that everything would be right, that everything would be good again, everything would be restored. This week, Friday, is our Good Friday. It is also the beginning of Passover. Did you know that? Friday evening, the Jewish people will get together and begin their Passover celebration. And they, if they are Orthodox especially, they will have a full Seder service in their family. You know what a Seder is? It's the, the whole Passover meal. All of the, the words and the songs are in a, a little book you can get to, from a book good store. But anyway, the, the interesting thing is that the last, very last words, the last three words of that Seder, at the end of everything that goes through their minds about the, the, the Passover experience, are these three words. L'shana haba'ah. Birushalayim, which means next year, the year that's coming, we will be in Jerusalem, right? It's kind of like an amen to the Passover story. They still, they still have that zeal that God would come and straighten things out for them and make it all right again. The messianic seal that is displayed by the people of Israel when Jesus came into Jerusalem is a good thing. It's a biblical thing. Except that they didn't understand what they were singing. They didn't really know what they were praising. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, verse 26. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, they said and sang. Sounds like Christmas, doesn't it? And it is indeed the Christmas words of the song of the angels. In an acting, Jesus, when he, when he was acting this way, you know, he, he, he came to Jerusalem in a very strange way. We should read that passage because it is very important for us to see what he did. So please let us turn to uh, the, the book of Luke, and that's in chapter 19, verses 28 to 24. There we go. Beginning at verse 28 in Luke chapter 19. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a cold tide there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It's a beautiful rendition of, on the part of St. Luke of this passage. And it's indeed a, a very uh, remarkable thing that Jesus did. In fact, that's the point that we first of all need to make. The people of Jerusalem were expecting the coming of the Messiah and you, you sense their, their zeal and this is really going to happen now. This, this rabbi who's been kind of a miracle worker and a very interesting character, the one that everybody's talking about all the time, is he the Messiah? Could he be? And now all of a sudden they see him climbing on a donkey and riding into Jerusalem. No wonder they sang. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they failed to recognize who he was. They didn't really know him as the king of peace. Soon the cry of the song of salvation will turn into the cry, crucify him, crucify him. The common people who shouted their praises in the hopes that Jesus would be coming their king that he would somehow be the king, but they expected a king like other kings. Well, what do kings do? Well, they don't really ride on donkeys. They're supposed to ride on horses. They don't look like this humble rabbi from Galilee. They look like kings, like majesty, like glory, like power. But that's not who he is. They want this king to throw over the Roman power that rules through Pilate and Herod and all those soldiers that are all over the place. We get rid of all this and start all over again with the king of kings. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they said. But they were quoting from a different passage than what they really knew. If they only, if they only had listened to the scriptures more closely. If only they had understood what is indeed the coming of the Lord all about. And the Bible, the Old Testament, so full of that, I could probably uh, quote you 15 to 20 prophecies alone, all about the same thing, about the coming of the Messiah. But here are a couple of them. The first one is from Psalm 10. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desires of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth will terrify no more. Did you hear? This is the king of kings coming. And he's going to lift up the poor and the humble and the needy and the sick and the dying. He's going to bring healing to the sinners and to the hurting, to all who come to him for what is needed, the grace of a new kingdom. He is willing to bring it in its fullness. 
He doesn't come in might and glory. If we go over to the passage that is, of course, the fulfillment here in uh, Palm Sunday, is from Zechariah chapter 9. Year 2, we, we must be amazed at the words that are there. You know the first part. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coal donkey. That's exactly what Jesus did. But then go on to read the rest of it. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, he means Israel, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will see your prisoners, I will free them from the waterless pit. God mercy and peace to those who are broken down and needy. And there are no horses, no war horses involved. And there are no chariots involved. There are no powerful armies involved. It all comes in the form of one single person riding lowly into Jerusalem on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey. Wow. Things are different, aren't they? These are not the things that they expected. And that's why they were all confused. The leaders of Israel were very quick to say, stop them, stop them, Rabbi. You shouldn't let them do this. Because they didn't want any king, king's talk at all. They wanted the peace that was already there, shaky. Rome was kind of in control of things, and then as long as they were in control, things were okay. They could go about their priestly services and all that in the temple, and things would balance out, even though there were some bad spots here and there. It was a shaky peace, but at least it was not war. But they didn't know that this king came to end all wars and all violence. They were eager just to, nobody would rock the boat. The other people, of course, they misunderstood. They wanted a king who would ride in glory and majesty and call all the soldiers and have lots of armies and kick out the Romans, send them back to Rome and have a new kingdom established in Jerusalem. None of them really understood. Even his disciples probably didn't get any of this until after the resurrection. But here also is our own need to have our eyes and our hearts opened. We need to see more clearly what is going on. We hear the song of Palm Sunday, but it's kind of strange in our ears too, isn't it? He is the king of kings. But listen to the words. Psalm 118 is what they're singing. But what does the Psalm 118 say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, but listen to the other words. He is the stone rejected by the builders. 
that will become the capstone of the new kingdom. That's the Lord who is on his way here. He is the one that's rejected. He is the one that will be broken. He is the one that will be crucified. And that's why he is riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, not a horse. And then the psalm goes on to say, this is the Lord's doing, not Israel's. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a beautiful psalm. It talks about the Lord's kingdom coming, and we simply receive it because it is not our doing. We didn't expect it this way. We really couldn't do it this way. Only God can. That's what the psalmist was all about in 118. So let's not fool ourselves if we think that we know better, of course, than those people did, so we've got the story okay. Well, maybe we do, but maybe we aren't all that sure about it either. Who is this king of kings? Who is this man who is so lowly and so meek that he doesn't look like a king at all, and yet he is the king? How could this be? How can God ride on a donkey instead of a marvelous machine of some kind? On the clouds of heaven, yes, we can understand that. But on a donkey? Come. But this is God himself. This is God Almighty. This is the powerful creator of heaven and earth. And he comes to be broken. He comes to be crucified. He comes to be killed for the sake of his kingdom. He is the ruler of rulers. He is the king of kings. And yet, he doesn't look like it, does he? That's what Holy Week is all about. In this Holy Week, it's a good time for us to take a fresh look at who Jesus really is. We confess him, but do you know him? Do we, do we understand more what this is all about? Why does he show himself this way? Why do we have to know how defenseless he is, how unassuming he is, what a lowly figure he is, See him there on his donkey? Can you hear his heart? In fact, if you read the next few verses in Luke 19, you will hear him crying. He's crying out from the bottom of his heart, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, why do you not know me? You have forgotten your God, and you will be destroyed, and I ache for you. He's already suffering. Hosanna, Hosanna. Miraculous intervention? No. There's no thunderclap from the clouds of heaven. There's no group of angels, not even a few angels, coming down to help Jesus establish his kingdom. It's just all going to happen on a cross. Yes, he will change that donkey, but it won't be a war horse. It will be replaced by a cross. Yes, that rabbi from Galilee will not become a great king in the sights of everyone. He will become a condemned criminal, rejected and despised by his own people, betrayed by one of his disciples, forgotten by 
the rest of the people around him, even deserted by his own loving disciples because they were afraid. And in the end, he is all alone, facing the most horrible death as the savior of the world. Yes, without resistance, without ever lifting a voice against his captors. In fact, while praying for his enemies who nailed him to the cross that they might be forgiven, he dies alone, all alone. It sounds like even God was not there. Remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our world needs that king. My world, your word, world needs that king. No other king will ever do. There's no other king who could possibly come anywhere near the glory and the majesty of that cross. It's God's way, you see? Not, not our way at all. We wouldn't want to do it this way. It's just too messy and it's too painful. But that's exactly the point of the cross. The people of the book didn't understand that cross when it happened. Now there are many people not of that book who don't probably know the book. In fact, even those many who call themselves Christians don't know this book all that well. And that's another reason why they cannot understand what that cross is all about. Why that cross is so powerful? Because its power comes not from war horses and chariots and might and money and power and glory from human perspectives, but it comes from the humble servant who lays down his life for his kingdom, for his world. People have wanted shalom, but haven't found it. The world today is probably aching for shalom as much as it ever has. And when we look at the television screens and see what's going on between Russia and Ukraine, our hearts ache because there is no shalom, is there, in the world. There is no shalom even in our streets. There is no shalom for people today in the world. Not without Jesus, not without this king. Shalom is a beautiful word. It, we translate it as peace, but it really means wholeness. It means redemption. It means recreation. It means what God really had in store for all of the world. And he came to bring that. We lived in Japan for many years, and we found out that many of the people in Japan have kind of a fatalistic attitude to all that. They would say, shikate ga nai, which means kind of like, a, ah, Whatever happens, happens. It's, you know, can't do anything about it. The old song, remember, Kesera, Sera? Well, that's pretty much contrary to the gospel, isn't it? It is not whatever will happen. There are many other people who have in their mind that human beings are really basically all pretty good. And so someday we're going to figure this out. We're going to find out how, how to make peace and how to make wholeness for everybody to enjoy. Well, we haven't gotten very far that way either. It doesn't work. There are others who say, well, if we would just 
meditate long enough, and if we would just discover the spirit that is really within us, the spirit of the, of the universe, then we could, we could solve all our problems and make peace. But that doesn't work either. There's only one answer, and the answer comes from God. Only in his way can there be shalom. It's the way of the cross, after all. It's his way or no way at all. And that's why we need this king of kings, because we will not find another way. We will not find wholeness in this world unless we go to Jesus Christ on his cross and there let God open the way for us. It's the only way. Now, this is very hard. I don't care what anybody said. This is so hard that most people say, that just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't want it that way. I want to do it myself, or I want to make something, some effort here myself. But God says, no, it's all done at the cross. This week, so I think it was last week, one of the, one of the uh, de- devotions that we were reading uh, said something like, uh, we should maybe not pay so much attention to the cross and really focus more on the, re- on the resurrection. Well, there's some truth to that, because you cannot have you cannot have a cross without a resurrection, right? I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. The cross opens the way to the resurrection. But resurrection without a cross, no way. No way. It's in the cross where the power is displayed by God. And that power is displayed in his weakness, in his humility, in his willingness to die for the whole world so that we could indeed go to Easter Sunday morning and rejoice in the resurrection because it's the power of the cross that opened this way. And unless he is there for us to open the way, we can never, never get into shalom. So that's God's way. So listen some more this week to this way of God. It's so important for us to see what that cross really is. I know it's easy to say, well, the cross is where Jesus died for my sins. That's, of course, true. But that's certainly not all of it. That's only a small kernel of the whole. It's, it's the wholeness of what happens at the cross that's so important. Here is the mighty ruler of the whole universe paying the price for recreating everything in his power, and it comes through weakness. It doesn't come with the glory of any human beings. It comes with the gentle hand of the Lord who opens the way while he dies on the cross and we are set free. There on that cross, the miracle of that cross is that he destroyed, he destroyed everything that was wrong in our universe, once and for all. He has destroyed Satan's power. He has destroyed sin's hold on us. He has destroyed the brokenness of humanity. He has destroyed our sins so far from us that we know them no more. They're buried somewhere out in the depths of the ocean. But God has made it possible for us to be free, and that freedom gives us access to the kingdom of God. It opens a door 
to God's kingdom. And this, I think, is the most important thing to remember from that cross. It is that on that cross, the miracle happens that God's Spirit takes the victory of Christ that he created in his death over all the all evils of the world. Everything is, is then taken by the Spirit of God and applied to those who believe. If you believe that Jesus is indeed the King of Kings, if you believe that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world because he gave his life on that cross, then the power, the power of the, of the resurrection, so to speak, the power of the new way of God will be entered into your heart and into your life. And then that changes you. That changes you completely. It may not be all at once, and it may take some time as we measure time, but God begins to work a miracle of new life in you and in all the people that you touch with the gospel. That gospel will take our lives and change them into wholeness, into useful citizens of the kingdom of God, who then can spread the good news of the cross and the resurrection to the whole world and begin to live it, show it, demonstrate what Israel failed to do so often, all the time that they were supposed to be the people of God in the midst of the world where everybody would see how great he is, the king of kings who ruled over Israel. They failed to honor him with their lives. And as a result, they reaped chaos. We must call ourselves to the task of honoring the king of kings with our lives so that they will spell out the miracle that happened on the cross and the joy and the good news of the resurrection. There is hope for this world, but it is only found in the king of kings. We need that king. We want that king. We wish that he would come back soon to establish his full control over everything that we now see so wrong because he is the king of kings. And we thank God that he has indeed opened the way. He alone could do it, and he alone has done it. Let's thank him. Oh, our heavenly Father, how blessed is he who comes in your name, the one who so miraculously, with all his power, as he laid it down upon that cross, as he gave it up for us all, for your world, for your creation, we thank you that he indeed became, in that miraculous moment on the cross, the sacrifice for all that is good and wholesome and filled with peace, the shalom, that you so dearly want to share with all of us. And we thank you that this is the gift, the gift beyond all gifts, that we may now share with our world. Help us to do that by what we say, what we think, by what we do, how we share the good news of salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.